You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Peloton tumbling after predicting another decline in sales. We'll discuss where the company's comeback efforts went wrong. The landscape for IPOs starting to heat up. We'll dig into Amair Sports, which starts trading today. And the world's biggest seller of smartphone processors starting to see a recovery. We'll speak to the CEO of Qualcomm, Cristiano Amon. But first, let's check in on these markets. And if we go stick in the world of sports and, and health and exercise for a moment, Amair Sports shares indicated at $13 to $14 each. The IPO price, remember, was $13. That's actually way off the mid-market range. So this is a company that's coming to the market, selling new shares of course this is Wilson tennis rackets this is like a Solomon ski boots as well and a big exposure to China we'll dig into that IPO story in a little bit on the show but first let's return to the woes that are really expressing themselves in the share price of Peloton today Mark Gurman is here with more and look they can't seem to catch a break in terms of people wanting to use the app in particular I mean where are they seeing some of the pain points Mark they're seeing pain points uh, essentially everywhere. Free cash flow is not where they want. Uh, revenue beat Wall Street expectations by about 20 million, but of course it was another annual decline for the company. App subscriptions were down 16%. Uh, they're still reporting a net loss. So this is not where the company once was. They were a high flyer at the height of the pandemic. Uh, they were a, a billion dollar plus quarter after quarter. Now their revenue as you can see, it was in the mid 700 millions, down 6%. Uh, EBITDA loss, just just no no real growth or momentum here for the company. And they're not expecting free cash flow to get to where they want real profitability now, uh, real growth uh, until the end of the year, until their fourth quarter. Right. Uh, so certainly they're not in a good place at this moment. Yeah, I think we're still asking, what what is Peloton, right? Is it a content company? Is it a hardware company? They've had all these different strategies. They include partnerships, the TikTok one being the most prominent that Kara and I have discussed. And then they turn around and say, you know what? Let's look at universities. That's a big market, you know, from a, from a gym equipment perspective. That hasn't worked either. So sum up Barry McCarthy's strategy here, Mark. 
Yeah, the strategy is to go all in on content and subscriptions, but this big revamp that they rolled out uh, a few months ago was a failure. It led to a large decrease in subscribers. They had some issues with their algorithm as well. You know, my personal take is maybe you wind down the hardware business completely. That's a lot of where your, your lack of profitability, a lot of where your net loss is coming from. Go all in on content, but then you're just an app. But I think if you're a pure content play, you have this really nice, really great subscriber base of near, nearly 750,000 users. Maybe that's something that's interesting to a Spotify or a Netflix or an Apple or an Amazon, where you can buy this pretty gigantic fitness content library. You can buy this application. You could buy the patents and the technology there. And you can make your Netflix subscription or your Spotify subscription or your Amazon Prime subscription more valuable and interesting to consumers by spending a few billion and buying all of Peloton's content arm. Maybe that's the real long-term play. At least if I was CEO, that's what it would be at this point. <laughs> Until you are CEO, Mark, we'll, we'll stick to our netting on also the areas, the wealth of expertise you have in other companies. We are all waiting with bated breath some big earnings after the bell and Apple is key among them. What are you expecting? Yeah, so uh, our estimates indicate that Apple is going to avoid a fifth quarter in a row of a decline, an earnings decline. That would be something that hasn't happened since the original iPod days uh, over 20-something years ago. So any growth, I think, is going to be uh, hugely impressive to the stock. Uh, what we're really looking for is a sizable beat on iPhone. If you remember at the end of 2022, the iPhone 14 Pro ran into some serious COVID-related uh, headwinds. So at this point, given the performance of the iPhone 15 concerns in China, given that this is a redesigned handset, uh, given that they have not had any production issues, you should be looking at a pretty clear beat on iPhone. So that's what we'll be uh, paying attention to, uh, in addition to, hopefully for the company, uh, a record around digital services, given all the app store noise right now highly recommend that you uh, follow the top live blog on the terminal for Mark's reporting and also his ex because it's a big Super Bowl moment for him after market close. Thank you to Bloomberg's Mark German. But let's keep the convo going. Bring in All Spring Global Investments, Chief Diversity Officer and Head of Active Equity and Miletti for more. Um, you know, I, I said a little earlier in the show and that if, if there was a lesson to be learned from Alphabet and Microsoft, it was that this was a high bar earnings quarter. Investors kind of wanted to see some tangible effect from all of the AI chat and investment of the last 12 months. Now we have Apple, Amazon and Meta on deck. Do you frame this as a high bar quarter? I do. Um, thanks for having me on the show. It's a high bar quarter because although fundamentals were really strong in 2023, multiple expansion also took place in a big way. And so when you have that multiple expansion and good earnings growth in 2023, the bar is now set for growth on top of what we saw and that multiple expansion is going to be harder to get. And so I think that's where you know the game of expectations really comes into play. There is other technology in the world outside of this. We call it the Magnificent Seven, and maybe Tesla gets taken out and it's the Magnificent Six. Are we not looking in the right place right now? We think the mar market should broaden out. You know, we, we really believe that in the, t the back half of last year, and as we look forward, we think that's true. Um, 
look, there are really good earnings prospects for several areas of the market. If you look at historic discounts between small and um, and large cap companies, those historic discounts are really pretty wide. And you're right, there's really good companies technology companies, healthcare companies, other companies that go down down market cap um, that just don't have the multiples, that didn't get the multiple expansion. Even some that have really high free cash flow did put up good fundamentals last year. And so those are the parts of the market that we're much more attracted to right now. Do the same drivers of growth apply, though, on the smaller side of the market capitalization? Is it that you want to hear from CEOs how they're leveraging AI, how they're thinking about cost discipline, how ultimately they're replacing people with machine? Absolutely. AI is, you know, not something that's going to go away. And I think we saw the first wave of it, certainly led by these large companies. I I still think that the large companies are going to lead. But what we're going to do is start to see AI applications be applied across the broader economy. And when that happens, you're going to see productivity and other things um, continue to rise. But it does take a while for it to play out. And so we're looking for individual companies that are applying AI, but not just AI, also other tools, also other capabilities that they have to really work through the current environment, which we all know, you know, is likely to be still a little bit bumpy here. Let's talk about that current environment. End on the macro for us, Anne, because is it therefore the jobs data that you look to at the moment? Is it still any hint of direction of Fed policy that really dictates trade here overall? You know, I think the Fed policy, you know, uh, it's interesting. Um, The Fed talk has maybe added a little bit of confusion, but the expectations um, for five to six rate cuts for the year were just higher than what we believed would actually happen. So yesterday wasn't so much of a surprise to us here at Allspring. What I would say, though, is we are watching the labor market really carefully and how that might be tied to company profits. And if we just go back to 2022, the technology companies actually were, you know, cutting back on labor. Some of those Meg 7 stocks you talked about, um, that led them and set them up pretty well um, to produce good profits in 2023 with some recovery. We are, um, you know, at the end of an inflationary cycle, pricing power starts to slip away. There starts to get to be some margin pressure amongst many companies. And so what then tends to happen is they start to unwind labor because that's where the biggest costs come from. So how closely are profits and labor tied? I think they're pretty closely tied. So we'll have to watch profits very carefully and within each industry and then also what that might mean for the labor market. There's been a lot of talk of cuts this particular earnings season when it comes to the labor force. All Spring Global Investments, Chief Diversity Officer and, of course, Head of Active Equity, Anne Maletti. Great to catch up with you. And what have we got? Well, coming up on the show, we're going to have a post-earnings conversation with AMD CEO Lisa Su. Really interesting AI name to watch right now. That's next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. 
Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Here's why AMD is optimistic. While revenue in the current period will be short of analyst estimates, the chipmaker's confident it's going to book more than $3.5 billion this year from its line of AI accelerators. That's up from its earlier projection of $2 billion. I caught up with AMD CEO Lisa Su yesterday to understand why. Have a listen. When I look at the potential of AI, it is really the you know single most important um, you know sort of you know technology innovation over the last 50 years. So AI has uh, so much potential to you know change the way um, our businesses work, to change our personal productivity, uh, to really change the way we do research and a whole bunch of things. Um, you know, from our standpoint, we see the um, AI TAM growing to upwards of you know 400 billion by 2027. Um, I think from an AMD standpoint. Point. Uh, you know, you, you were at our launch, Ed, in December. Um, it was a great coming out party for the uh, AMD, you know, AI capabilities, and um, it's gone really well. I think our customer interactions, um, our uh, product uh, qualifications, our ramp have gone really well. Uh, so yes. we were able to update, um, you know, some of our numbers um, uh, this uh, this this past week. I think a lot of folks focused on that ramp and how it went in the quarter. You know, you exceeded the 400 million that you told me about at that event. So it's $3.5 billion of sales this year for MI300. What's interesting here is kind of your ramp relative to what's happening on the supply side. And I wondered how big a factor supply will be in matching or beating that number in 24. Yeah, absolutely. Ed. This is the fastest product um, ramp, um, you know, in our history. So, you know, we exceeded our numbers in Q4 over 400 um, uh, million. Uh, we're going to grow into Q1, and we updated our full year forecast from two billion to three and a half billion. Um, the way we think about that is that's a customer demand statement. So that is customers that we've engaged in uh, who have made commitments to us, who have uh, placed orders with us. Um, we're planning for a much larger. Um, number as it relates to the supply chain. This is what we should do. We always plan for success. Um, so, you know, my view is um, it's still very, very early in the in the innings for um, AI accelerators and particularly for MI300. Uh, but uh, this is an opportunity for us to, you know, continue to build a major growth driver um, as we uh, work with our top customers on their AI plans. That was AMD CEO Lisa Su. 
This is Talking Tech. Elon Musk is making moves to deepen his presence in Texas. After asking followers on X, he plans to bring shareholders in for a vote to shift its incorporation from Delaware to Texas. This comes after a Delaware judge voided his $55 billion compensation package. And in other news, this is something I reported last night, a battery plant in Nevada is in the works. According to our sources, the plant will use equipment from China's CATL, otherwise the biggest company making sales in the world. The move comes amid heightened scrutiny by Washington and collabs with Chinese firms. Let's get a quick check on these markets, Ed. Apple on deck for after the bell. We're up five-tenths percent, but could we have a fifth straight decline in revenue? We haven't seen those sorts of consecutive declines in revenue since all the way back to 1998. We've had four straight, but can they eke out that 1% revenue growth that the market is anticipating? Qualcomm off by more than 4%. We've got a key conversation coming with Cristiano Ramon just in a few moments' time. But this is, they managed to guide that, look, mobile is recovering in terms of their chips. But what about autos? What about connected devices? Not so good. Peloton off by 23 3% after, of course, what has been a painful set of, well, lack of growth numbers once again. Meanwhile, though, we want to be talking about some other areas of sport, not just Peloton exercise area, but what about Wilson tennis rackets? What about, well, areas of, well, the areas of skiing for your boots? Emir Sports, they've just been IPOing. And look, it's below the marketed range in terms of the midpoint, but they are coming out, it seems to be pricing in the $13 to $14 per share mark. Let's talk about what this means for the rest of the IPO market and some of the tech names within it. Shanali Basak's with us. And what's interesting about Emir Sports is that they have big Chinese backers in particular and they have exposure to the Chinese market. What does this read across the rest of the IPO market? Yeah, listen, we did see this becoming the biggest IPO since we've seen Birkenstock. So big consumer names coming to market. It's not just about the Chinese consumer. If you look at where a bulk of their revenues come from, they're very heavily exposed here, Caroline, to the Americas, as well as the Europe, Middle East, and Africa region, the EMEA region. And so this is a very large global brand going out of public, uh, going public at a time where people are kind of worried about the global economy and the strength of the consumer. Now, some of these brands tend to lean more affluent, like Arcteryx. Anyone who's bought Arcteryx gear knows that you're paying a little more for it than, say, you are a Patagonia. But it shows in the numbers, and they've really been able to ex expand revenue as people get back on the slopes and back out there playing sports and traveling around the world for a lot of these uh, types of categories here in athletics. All right, Bloomberg Shanali Bassett with the breakdown on MS Sports. We're still watching that for the opening, but it's certainly one to watch. And don't miss later Shanali's live interview with the CEO of MS Sports, James Zheng, which is coming up in the next hour. Let's keep it going. The IPO landscape is a conversation that we need to have, and we're joined by Greg Martin, co-founder and managing director of Rainmaker Securities. It's a curious one. Right, uh, sports. I'm, I'm, a, I'm into my pickleball. So Wilson, that's an interesting readover. But the backers are some big Chinese tech names. Uh, your view on, on what this is is a signal to the market. This IPO from Amair Sports. Well, I mean, it, it is it is a data point for sure. Um, you know, Amer the the brands that Amair Sports owns, you know, are are venerable brands. Have been around for a while. The company showed good growth in both revenue and EBITDA, but it was laden with debt. Um, it was a highly leveraged company, and you know the market has been punishing highly leveraged companies for a long time. Um, even though rates have come down, they're still they're still you know still relatively high relative to where they were were a few years ago. Um, and so you know I, I think the market is still taking a wait and see approach. Uh, I think underwriters clearly misjudge demand. In fact, in this case, what was interesting is 60% of the IPO was bought by insiders. 
normally that's a really strong signal um, that should stimulate demand. So there, this this IPO is almost you know completely carried by inside investors. There, there was very shockingly little outside interest. So. This is a data point. It's a different type of company. I think when we see some more traditional, you know, companies that are, you know, maybe a little bit earlier, but but with real growth stories and unlevered, I think that'll be a better benchmark as to how the IPO market really is right now. Is it a starter gun for the five or so actual technology companies that are waiting in the wings as IPO candidates? Well, I, w- I wouldn't. It doesn't really feel like a big breath of wind um, when they priced, you know, 23 and a half percent below the midpoint of their filing range. Uh, we'll see how they trade today. I mean, you know, let, let's let's hold out uh, a verdict until we see how it trades. Um, but I wouldn't say it's 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 a big starter gun. Doesn't mean the IPO market's going to close. I and mean, we had another sort of poorly performing IPO last week with Brightspring that's traded down 15 percent in a week and also price below its midpoint of its range. But both of those companies, as I said, were highly levered. So I, I don't draw a lot of conclusions, frankly, from either of these two IPOs. I, I, I would like to see how, you know, I think Reddit might be one of the next companies to come out. I would like to see how more traditional tech companies that are venture back that you know, don't have a long history and have significant leverage. I'd like to see how those companies price. So I, I don't think there's a ton to learn right now from either of these two IPOs. Let's therefore focus in on the reporting that was of this week that Reddit is looking at coming in the near future at a trying to get a sense of what market capitalization whether it's five billion or so which is a significant haircut from where they last raised money at but you've been highlighting some of the names that might well come to the market as well as Reddit you've got Stripe, Churo, Chime, Databricks, Service Titan are we likely to see some pain for previous rounds of late stage investors and what recompense do they get? It's it's a really interesting question. You know, Redis last round valuation was ten billion. You know, in sort of the the height of the market in twenty twenty one. You know, I, I think that given they they've performed reasonably well, they filed for IPO at the end of twenty one. They said they were going to do a billion of revenue in twenty twenty three. They did sounds like by report somewhere closer to eight hundred million. So they are growing, growing reasonably well. But you know, I think that would suggest a valuation. You know, in an IPO in the you know four to six billion range. Um, so how do last round investors who paid 10 billion feel about that? Um, it'll be an interesting discussion between last round investors and current investors and, and potentially you know, IPO investors. But this is a problem that's, that a lot of companies are, are facing. We saw you know, Instacart when they went public, they had a $39 billion you know, last round valuation, then they went public at around 10 billion. So this is the medicine that I think companies are going to have to take to get to the IPO markets. Um, But we're going to see a lot of interesting negotiations between last round investors and and underwriters at this point. And the reason, Greg, we have your expertise on the show is because you are there helping make markets in pre-IPO names. And I'm interested as to what appetite is like at the moment, what sort of valuations you're tending to see in these transactions. Yeah, I mean, we've we've definitely seen a significant drop off in valuations over the last couple of years. Um, you know, with with a couple of exceptions. Uh, clearly, the AI space uh, has been a rocket ship, as has the rocket company SpaceX. Um, you know, so there's been a couple of exceptions, but generally speaking, we've seen you know significant uh, you know devaluation in a lot of these high flying companies. You know, Reddit. We've recently seen trading um, you know start to pick up a little bit as as investors feel that an IPO is is forthcoming. But we're seeing pricing in you know just below five billion range. 
Um, but as a general rule, you know, we're starting to see a little bit of an uptick uh, in both demand and in valuations. And I think that bodes well for, you know, a healthy IPO market should, you know, most of the other economic indicators sort of stay stable as, as, as they are now. Oh, all about the macro sometimes too. Greg Martin, brilliant to get your perspective. Thank you, co-founder and managing director of Rainmaker Securities. Coming up, well, we're going to talk about the private market a little bit more. Data Snipper has just snapped a $1 billion valuation on the promise of using AI to automate some of the more tedious tasks in the world of auditing. We'll get into it next to the CEO. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's talk venture. Data Sniffer has raised $100 million in a Series B and a billion-dollar valuation. It's been led by Index Ventures in the round. The company uses AI to make audit and data reconciliation more efficient, basically serving users across brands like Deloitte, EY, Siemens. Here with more is the CEO of that business, Vidya Peters. And Vidya, I love in the release about this phrase, you say basically you've made their job fun for the first time. You're talking about customers, about auditors. Make it sexy for us. How are you making financial audit that much easier? Caroline, first, thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to talk to you about Data Snipper. It's an exciting day here, and here's why. Every day you and I wake up and we operate on trust. Uh, for the products and services we use, we buy the stocks we invest in. And yet there are armies of people behind the scenes making that possible uh, that are essentially in thankless jobs. Uh, audit has been under tremendous pressure. Uh, this is an industry that has seen unprecedented attrition. There are fewer people joining the industry and there are more people leaving it. And there are the same number of hours to do the work that they have been doing. And yet the auditing standards have been going up. And there have been very few software solutions and tools built for auditors. And that's what Data Snipper looks to solve. We use AI to help 
automatically match a lot of data, whether it's structured or unstructured sources, to really validate some of the transactions that they're looking to cross-reference, to reconcile, to match, and to validate. Really taking hours, days of manual work and, and doing that in seconds for them. Vijay, in your case, the why you raised money is interesting because your revenue growth is impressive. And my understanding is you want to go to all of those long-suffering internal audit folks that are daily worrying about Sarbanes-Oxley or SOX com management compliance and controls programs. But why did you need $100 million to do that? Why couldn't you just do it off your own cash flow? Ed, we absolutely could have done it from our cash flow. We've been profitable from the beginning and very proudly growing sustainably while doing this at a high growth. Here was an opportunity to accelerate our vision. It was about being able to build and ship great new products faster to solve more problems for our customers. It gives us the opportunity to expand. We're opening our first office in Kuala Lumpur and in Latin America while strengthening our presence in the United States. And it's about ensuring that we have the go-to-market muscle to be able to reach customers like your wife. So we couldn't be more excited to be able to serve customers across external audit, internal audit, financial control, anyone who's looking to debt to match and reconcile data, Data Snipper can be a help. 100 million, where does that get allocated as to what you can do to get into the hands of more financial auditors right here, right now? Is it marketing? Is it people? What are the bottlenecks you're facing, Vidya? The first is to be able to build and innovate products at the pace our customers need. Uh, the auditing industry has long been forgotten as a vertical. They are some of the most underserved customers. Uh, some of the work that they, are, that they are doing is so manual, you would be shocked that we are in the year 2024 and there are such few solutions built for them. And our agenda, number one, is to build as many great innovative products to solve as many problems for them as possible. And so all of our resources, time and focus is on innovating. All right, Data Sniffer CEO, Vijay Peters, $100 million Series B, $1 billion valuation, good to check in. For our Bloomberg Television and radio audience worldwide, more earnings, and this time Qualcomm, delivering a solid earnings forecast for the current period, helped by a recovering market for smartphone chips. But some analysts also noting high inventory levels in other business lines. Delighted to bring in Qualcomm CEO, Cristiano Amon. And let's get right to the inventory narrative, Cristiano. So smartphone... You said the inventories have improved. The, the lingering concern is Internet of Things, which for our global audience is basically anything with a network connection, right? From industry manufacturing through to connected devices in the home. And you're saying that they're, they're still working through inventories there. But because that business line is so broad, what can you tell me about where the inventories linger specifically, geographically, heavy industry, retail? Very good. Ed, good talking to you. First of all, I don't understand where this inventory commentary is really coming from. We saw this, I think, uh, in the press yesterday. Maybe I'll use this opportunity to explain. Uh, the majority of our business, Hansen's, we're working very hard to diversify the business. We're making good progress, but still the majority of the business handsets. And hence, as we have seen that inventory had actually stabilized since last quarter. I think what we see in the results, especially with the uh, beat and raise uh, in EPS, is that hence are getting back to normal. We're happy with the health of the Android ecosystem. 
uh, premium tier, it's strong with HN3, and we still see that in the numbers. IoT, we talk about industrial inventory actually before every other company. Actually, we were some of the first ones to talk about it. Uh, it's still a smaller percent of our business. We'd like it to be bigger, but we had said that that is the lowest quarter, and we expect to see uh, growth in the coming quarters. So, yeah, I, I don't understand uh, this uh, comment on inventory. We're happy with the results, and we're happy with a number of the analyst revisions that actually came out this morning on the stock. I'm just reading the, the transcript from the earnings call, right? And, and you said second half of the fiscal year, as we see the inventory kind of normalizing in the IoT context. A, a positive area was China. You promised that we would get an uptick in China sales. We did get that. Does it reflect customers in China having been through inventories, or is this a commitment to forward ordering, signs that those end markets have demand? Yes, uh, this is a great question. And I want to start by saying we have two vectors that are very encouraging. One vector is the premium tier has proven to be resilient, even within the uh, macro uncertainty. And it shows that users, when they go buy their next phone, they want a better phone. The second thing is we're starting to see the first innings of Gen AI. Some of the use cases are starting to come in, and that has brought some excitement. Uh, some of our customers had record uh, pre-sales of their new devices with HN3. And what we see in China right now, I think there was a lot of concern in the past about Huawei coming back to the phone business. But what's exactly happening is Huawei is increasing the size of the TAM, uh, and our customers are holding share and seeing opportunities in the premium tier, and that's reflected in the quarter. We have a lot of orders of HN3, especially for phones that launch or are launching in the market. We're happy. We're just cautiously optimistic since we don't know how this second half of the year in phones in China is going to unfold. Cristiano, how do you navigate geopolitics when it comes to China, not just macroeconomy? We just do business. I think we focus on what we can control. I think we're happy that we have a strong relationship with China. Our technology is differentiated and is helping, I think, uh, both sides. One, it's, uh, it's business, it's export of semis for the U.S., for China. It has been growth for technology. We have not been impacted to date by any of the restrictions. And as we diversify the company going from handsets to automotive and industrial, I think we see our China business expanding as well. Let's go back to the bread and butter that is phones, though. And I think about Apple's earnings coming after the bell, everyone wanting to get some sort of steer on where the consumer is at right now. And ultimately, you've said, look, consumer, we're recovering in phones. But how excited are consumers to renew, do you think? And how much will this manage to carry you on into the rest of 2024? Look, we don't want to make a prediction. Uh, phone cycles is very difficult to make predictions. I've, there are a couple of things that we know uh, it will happen. Once every 10 years, you have a, a generation of wireless. We've just been to the 5G transition. but. The early signs of Gen AI use cases are actually exciting. I think you saw Samsung launching S24 uh, with a number of uh, uh, Gen AI use cases running on the device. Same thing happened in China, just mentioned about that. So that could create an interesting opportunity for upgrade cycle in phones. It's just hard to predict the timing.
For our Bloomberg television and radio audience, we're speaking to Qualcomm CEO Cristiano Amon. Cristiano, you and I have talked about on-device processing of generative AI tools and running of large language models, on-device aeroplane mode. When does that business that, that you're involved in show up in the financials? Yeah, I, the, way, the way you should think about the financial impact, especially if you think about phones, is really uh, a premium uh, tier becoming a larger percentage of the market, and we're kind of starting to see that. And then the other one is more silicon content. I think our ASPs uh, increase on the chipset, and that has a positive contribution for the business. And and uh, I, the dynamic that we see with the success of HN3 is just the first signs of the opportunity. But just to be cautious that we still need to see a lot of use cases develop. Lots of partnerships and deals kind of talked about on the call. And we think about names like Apple and Samsung and the, the handset makers in China. Look at the history of Qualcomm. Can you kind of guarantee investors that you can continue forward on the deals and avoid the le legal entanglements you've had in prior years? All right, so you, you mentioned partnerships. I think we have two very important conversations, and I want to make a distinction. I think the first one is our licensing business. And we have been saying that the licensing business, which has been the reason we have been in a number of disputes in the past, it's very stable. It's one of the most stable times that we had since the beginning of the licensing business. And in the quarter, we announced uh, three very important milestones. One is we saw an extension of the Apple license agreement. That means that Apple is paying license for the Qualcomm standard essential patents, and that's regardless of using or not using a Qualcomm chip. We also saw two Chinese uh, significant customers renewing the license agreement, which speaks to the value of the Qualcomm intellectual property portfolio, even in China, in the middle of the geopolitics. That's a very positive side to investors. Now, the second part of the question is about partnerships. What's exciting about Qualcomm, and I know we spend a lot of time talking about uh, handsets, but auto, there is a lot of reports on the peers of a decline in auto. If you look at this quarter, we actually had record auto revenues with 31% growth year over year when the whole market is down. And that speaks right. to the number of ships we've been making in auto uh, for the future of the automotive industry. And that's an important metric where the future of Qualcomm is going to be. Still about that diversification. Qualcomm CEO, Cristiano Amon, great to have some time with you. We thank our radio and TV audiences. That does it from Bloomberg Edition and Bloomberg Technology. Do you remember to look at the podcast? The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.